Before we begin, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the most magnificent one, the merciful one, he who is the master and teacher of the 10,000 world systems in which we reside, our father, our guide, reminding ourselves that we are so extremely fortunate to be his students, followers of the path that he laid down for us. Let us take this moment to remind ourselves why we are here, our purpose, not just here in this room, but why we are here as human beings in Sansara. And with that in mind, let us bring our palms together in veneration of the supremely enlightened one, the perfect one, and renew our pledge and our oath to ourselves to free ourselves from suffering once and for all. Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse These teachings of the Buddha that we come and learn with our most noble intention to assimilate and practice sometimes it can take a while for all this to make sense so I wouldn't worry personally, if I were you. If they all don't make sense at the, you know, at the beginning, in one sitting, in one listening, it'll take a while. And that's fine. In this audience we have young listeners and even younger listeners. We don't have old listeners, do we? Young listeners and even younger listeners. So your experiences will be different. Your mental capacity will be different. Perhaps intellectual capacity. For some, it's maturing, and that is very natural. It's all a part of growing up and developing ourselves. So, let it take its time. You can't make, you can't make water boil faster by worrying about it. If you had a pot of water that you needed to boil, there are a few things you could do. You could turn up the heat. Maybe you could empty half of the container, thereby reducing the amount of water you needed to boil. But, out of all the things that you could do, potentially, worrying about it is not going to make it boil any sooner. 
So don't dishearten yourselves that some of these things might not make sense immediately. And that's okay. It didn't make sense for any of us immediately. If it did, we wouldn't have come all this way. Our presence here, all of us, is simply evidence that none of this might make sense immediately. It's not meant to make sense immediately. It's, make, it's meant to make sense when the conditions are right. That's when it's meant to make sense. So your presence is what's important. Merit is what's important. And when you're here, being here is important. So if you're here and you're playing on your mobile phone, not that anyone has ever done it, I'm just saying, then you're not here. You're here, but you're not here. But when you're here, you have to be here. Then it'll make sense. When? When will it make sense? That's not the right question to ask. It's not when. When the conditions are right, it will make sense. In the first sermon that was delivered by the Buddha, it only made sense to one out of five human beings. For the others, it didn't quite make sense. It was beginning to make sense, but the penny didn't really drop for any of the other four. See? And if the Buddha could only do that, preach in a way that would only make sense to one person, how many people in this room do you think I'm expected to help make sense? If the Buddha could only do it for one among five, then I'd be happy if half of you made sense, not half of all of you, half of one person. That would in fact be an achievement. So, I'm keen to remind you of this because sometimes you might feel that this is getting a little bit, it's going over the top for me, it's getting a little bit complicated. It's not really, it's not complicated at all. In fact, if anything, it's getting simpler and simpler by the day. That is why we practice the Dhamma, one for ourselves and also for those who rely on and depend on these teachings. Sometimes when it's first delivered to us by Guru Handru, it is not this simple, because he preaches perhaps to monks, Anagarikas and Anagarikas, whose life it is to understand this, and who practice this every single day of the, of the year. And then, to break it down further, digestion, if you like, so that you can absorb it. This, is, this has been distilled further and further and further. All you need to do is just be here, be alert, be awake, be receptive, and it'll make sense. So please, I remind you, None of you need worry that it's not making a lot of sense. As all things, after a while, it will. And again, for some of you, these are some of the concerns that I get from time to time from individuals. It's making sense, Swami Nuhansa, but it's not really making sense. In other words, you'll say, I understand it, but 
I don't feel like I'm practicing it. I don't feel like it's it's doing anything for me. I understand it. It's making logical sense. But when I when it's time for me to apply it, that application doesn't seem to happen. I'm still getting angry and as I'm as angry as I used to be. I feel sad and frustrated the same way as I used to. So uh, you know, is my coming here of no no meaning at all? Is is nothing happening for me? You keep pouring the dhamma into me, but I seem to be like an empty vessel. Nothing is going in. Is that so? You might ask. Again, it's like anything. You've got to keep doing it over and over again. None of you learned to ride the bike the first time you got on it. It took a while. The first time you got on it, for most of us, if not all of us, what happened? We fell. That's what happened. When you first learned to walk, the first time you managed to get yourself upright on your own two legs, what happened? The very first time? Hmm? This is the universal truth. We all fell. We all fell. Any beast that managed to try and get himself or itself on, on its legs, be that two or four, it always fell. But it never gave up. How do you know you never gave up? How do you know? <laughs> exactly. That's how you got here. If you'd given up then, you wouldn't be here today. So your presence here itself is evidence of that. So in the same way, your presence here is evidence that the very first sermon that we did, however many years ago that might have been, I can't remember now, you didn't give up. Because I don't expect that sermon to have made sense for everybody. Or the one after that. Or the one after that. Ten sermons then on, twenty from then on, fifty from then on, a hundred from then on. I don't expect it to have made sense for all of you, all at once. This is very natural. See, we, sometimes we concern ourselves and worry ourselves about the fruit, about things coming to fruition. Useless, meaningless. We concern ourselves about that when we don't understand the, the principle of anicca. That's why we worry about it, the fruit. We worry, about, uh, we worry ourselves about the effect. We worry ourselves about the effect because we don't understand the concept of anicca. So, unfortunately, this is a bit of a catch-22. For you to not worry about it, you have to understand it. Then you don't worry about it. So if, you do, if you're worried that you're not understanding the Dhamma, what must you do? Understand? Understand the Dhamma. And then you won't worry about not understanding the Dhamma. Simple. Right? So if you're worried about not understanding the Dhamma, then hurry up. And understand the Dhamma. Then you realize that you needn't worry about not understanding the Dhamma. Okay? Thank you, Swami So Now it all makes sense. <laughs> I was very helpful. Yes, I try to be helpful. <laughs> okay. So, that's that. Let's move on. <clears throat> Do you remember what we discussed last week? We talked about Sam and Nikki. Yes? What else did we talk about? We talked about 
what you eat. So that was a few weeks ago and then we've been continuing from then on how you are what you eat or in fact we questioned are you really what you eat? And how through our ignorance, out of ignorance, we look at ourselves and we think to ourselves that we are a certain individual, we think that we are a, pers- a certain person, a personality, but we don't look at the things you eat and say the same thing. But we know well and truly that all of this, this physical form, has been constructed out of things that have been put in through our mouths and nothing else. So I think, I, rem- I remember, I, l- I left you last week asking you to contemplate on this truth, to think about it as you, as you go and take your meals, as you walk about, as you do things, as you wash yourself, right? As you take a moment to look at this physical form that you are, I, I requested that you look at it through this lens, take this perspective, and ask yourself the question, what are you? What is this form? Looking at your arms, looking at your legs, looking at your torso, looking at your body, looking at your head, ask yourself, what are you? And when you begin to look at it that way, you realize that there is not really a physical body, a unit that you can call yourself or the way that you perceive yourself. You give yourselves a name, that is not the person, or that is not the body that you see stood in front of the mirror. That is not who you are. It is only how you perceive yourself. Perception is one, reality is another. Perception and reality don't always match. That is the problem. That is the problem, actually. When perception and reality don't match, then there's a collision. And when there's a collision, there's damage. That damage is the damage that you suffer. That damage and collateral damage. That is all the damage and the suffering that you have to experience. So we need to take another step forward on that journey. I think I I promised to try and unravel another aspect of this because there was a question that had come through. So if this is the body, it makes sense, okay. The body is constructed of the stuff that we put in to ourselves and now we understand that I'm not attached to another body but what about the mind that lives inside the bodies? How do you detach yourself from those minds? If you take, for instance, yourself and you think of someone you're attached to. Don't you all have someone you're attached to? That could be yourself or perhaps somebody else, right? When you think about them, you feel a certain fondness towards them. But what is it that you're attached to? It's time to unravel that. To do this task of Bhagava which is to split, split things up, separate things, and to understand that it is inseparable. You separate to understand it's inseparable. Huh? (laughs) That makes a whole lot of sense. You know, there's something I really want you all to remember, and understand more than remember. Oftentimes when we 
discuss the Dhamma, we spend far too much time trying to figure what is not there. Sometimes, you know, people ask the question, Swaminas, I understand that the self is not there. I understand that I am not there, and so on. That's okay, but that's not going to be the answer. That is not the solution. The Buddha's arrival is not to come and teach us what is not there. His task was to teach us what is there. In understanding what is there, you don't need to be told what is not there. What is this not? Shall I give you all a pen and paper and ask you to write what this is not? I'll come back next week and you'll still be writing. Won't you? No? What, what is this not? Hmm? Potato? <laughs> yeah, what else? How many answers can you give me of what this is not? Infinite. Yeah? There are infinite answers to the question, what is this not? So let's say someone is worried, someone's scared. There's a little kid who thinks that this is a demon. Right? So when I lift this up, he gets scared. Swami Nas has brought the demon. Let's just say. The Buddha's method is not to convince them that this is not a demon. That is not the Buddha's method. What the Buddha does is to try and convince them what this is. Because here's the thing, let's say we try and convince them that this is not a demon. Today, they're fine because this is not a demon. But what if the next day, they get scared because they think this is the devil. Not the demon now, but the devil. So then you'll have to, the, the Buddha will have to revisit. And now convince them that this is neither, de neither demon nor devil. Fine. The next day, they think this is a big and scary dinosaur. Now what happens? Then they'll have to come and convince that this is neither demon, nor devil, nor dinosaur. And then the next day, you see, that is why it is pointless to talk about what, not what this is not, but rather to convince them what this actually is. Because that needs only to be told once. This is only one thing, whatever that thing is. right? I need only to convince you of the truth once. But if I keep telling you what this is not, I can keep telling you until the cows come home and the following day I have to come back again and try and convince you that it is not that either. And I'll just have to keep on doing that. Does that make sense? So in your efforts to try and understand the truth, to try and understand the Dhamma, and as you have those discussions, you know, after this talk and so on, on a Saturday, with the Swami Nuhan says, and when you try and reflect on the Dhamma yourselves, if you find yourselves doing some meditative contemplation, do try and spend as much of that time trying to convince yourself of what you are, not what you are not. Make sense? So, for instance, now, you feel you are the person you are, okay? Say, you're, say your, your name is John. You, you, you try and can tell yourself, I'm not John. I'm not John. No, I'm not John. I'm not John, and I'm not John. I'm certainly not John. 
you just keep on saying, yet you're not John. And every time you keep saying you're not John, you're actually saying the thing that you're not, over and over and over again. So your meditation, your contemplation should not be, I'm not John. What it should be is, this is the stuff that I have put in. That is the way you have to contemplate. So this is not self, this is not self, this is not self, this is not self, is not a meditation. No self, no self, no self, no self, is not a meditation. Don't get stuck in that, the no self meditation. Sometimes in the questions that people ask, sometimes in the comments that people make, sometimes in, in the discussion, the arguments that people bring up, it seems that a lot of time people get stuck in that no self, no self meditation. This anatma meditation, no self. I'm not a self. My head is not a self. My neck is not a self. My arms are not self. My body is not self. My legs are not self and my feet are not self. None of me is self. That doesn't, that doesn't solve the problem. Because today you say it's not self. Next day you'll say it's not something else. To hit the nail on the head, you've got to figure what you are. Because you're not nothing, are you? Are you nothing? Are you nothing? Is it nothing on that chair right now? I mean, if I turn the chair upside down, is nothing going to happen? Shall we try? If I go and come and punch, like, you know, throw a punch, is nothing going to happen? Because there's nothing. No, there is something. Then the question is not whether it is self or not. The question is, what is it? Convince yourself what it is, and all the things it is not will not bother you again. Make sense, everyone? Yeah? The? Make sense? You? Yes? Excellent. See, if she can make sense, then all these doers can make sense. How old are you with her? Nine. Do next to you? Ah. No excuses. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a seven-year-old in my cell. If she can make sense of this, then all of you, 70-year-old grannies as well, you can all make sense of this. From seven to 70. <laughs> you can all make sense. That's why I say try and let's swap places once in a while, see what this feels like. You have to try and explain things in a way that is interesting and makes sense to everyone in the audience. So, does that make sense? This contemplation is not about what you are not and what it's not about what this is not. So let's not talk about what this is not. Let's talk about what this is and then we needn't talk about, hmm? we need not talk about all the things that this is not. Because the reason that this will break when it drops is not because of what this is not. Understood? When I let go of this, if I do that now, it's going to shatter, it's going to break, it's fragile. That is not because of what it is not. Why would it, why does it break? Because of 
what it is. So if we are if we are concerned about why this breaks when we when it drops, right? Why it makes that noise when it blanks on something, then what's the point in talk about what it is not? Our worry, our concern is that this breaks when it drops. So what's the point in talk about what it is not? The only way we're going to try and find the answer to why it breaks when it drops is by discussing what it is. Yes, what it is, not what it is not. So, you suffer. Hmm? You suffer. How are some of the ways in which you suffer? Fear is a suffering. Grief is a suffering. Sorrow is a suffering. Yeah? Your ego makes you suffer. Desire makes you suffer. Anger makes you suffer. Is that because of what you're not? Hmm? Is that because of what you are not? No, certainly not. You suffer because of what you are. This is why the Buddha's teaching is about what you are. That is why he talks about jati. Jati is what is. His, his talks, his discourses don't focus on self. They focus on jati. His, his teachings don't focus on non-self. His teachings focus on jati. When he discusses, when he delivers, when he talks about jati, it makes sense to everyone that it is that and nothing else. That is a realization that people come to. He doesn't need to teach about that. He doesn't need to say, okay, this is this and nothing else. You are convinced of that yourself. When you know that this is black, you know that it is not white. So that's what we do. So in these talks, my effort is going to try to be to explain to you what you are, not what you are not. But I will ask you the question. I will certainly ask you the question. So are you a male or female? I'm asking you that question because if you've understood what you are, then you realize that that question makes no sense. But it is a question that you've always been asking in your life. Am I a male or female? In fact, every chitta that arises in your mind, or every chitta that arises within you, in every chitta you have to convince yourself <coughs> excuse me, that you are either male or female. Do you know that is how unsure you are? of your identity. You are so unsure about your identity that every chitta that arises you have to convince yourself newly that you are a male. Do you understand what I've just said? Every chitta that arises, let's say there are hundred chittas that arise in a second, in each of these chittas you have to convince yourself afresh that you are a male or you are a female, you are tall, you're dark, you're handsome, or you're short, or you're ugly, whatever it is that you believe. You're blind, you're deaf, you're limp, whatever. You have to convince yourself of this. Every chitta, this has to be constructed in the mind because it is not the truth. A lie has to be repeated time and time and time and time again. Because every chitta that is born, newly, is a brand new chitta, and it does not accept the truth. I mean, you know, it is, it, is, it is the truth. The chitta is the truth. So for it to be convinced of a lie, you have to feed it all those lies. 
So every moment you have to keep convincing yourself that this is my name. I am such and such a person. I'm, you know, I live in this place. I'm, this is my identity. Everything that goes on your identity card, you have to prove yourself every single time. Like when the police stop you and they ask you for your identity card to show your, show your identity, every chitta that is born, you have to convince yourself of your identity. That is how much, that is how much you are not an identity. You are not an identity. It's just mass and energy. So that is what we need to try and get from here. Right. Let's start talking about how the mind perceives because now that you understand that this body is not anything more than just the stuff that you put in, just reconstructed, yeah? This is just the stuff that you put in, reconstructed, rearranged, reorganized. You're now beginning to understand, hopefully, that there is nothing of essence here, there is no unit here that you can attach yourself to. Yeah? So if you looked at your, your hand for a second, you can, I, I need you to be able to visualize that this is the food that you've eaten, but reconfigured. Can you, can you imagine that as you look at yourself? Right? If you look at your hand, you know, although you see a thumb, an index finger, a middle finger, a, what's this finger called? Ring finger. Ring finger? Is that the real name? Okay, and the little finger, right? So, if you, as you look at yourself and look at the fingers on your hand, you think that this is the thumb and this is the index finger. What is this made of and what is this made of? Same thing. Did you eat a, eat a, eat a, eat a thumb to get a thumb? No. Did you eat an index finger to get an index finger? No. Let's just say you cut off your thumb and you ate it. Uh, disgusting. <laughs> is it disgusting? Is it? What's disgusting then? So, you cut off your thumb and you ate it. And imagine your thumb could grow again. It won't, so please don't try this at home. Imagine if it, if it could, right? And say you ate, uh, you, you cut off another finger. You know, these were punishments that were given back then. In the, in the times of the kings, right? People for, for thieving, they would cut off parts of the body and they would feed it to you. If you hang around long enough, you can experience that again. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, if, when people are caught, um, when people are engaged in abuse, sometimes rape, hmm, their genitals would be cut off and fed to them to teach others a lesson. It doesn't teach them a lesson because after you cut that off, then you, you know you can't you can't make the same mistake twice. But it teaches other people a lesson. Right? If you do this, here are the consequences. So it would be a deterrent to others to not, not do and engage in such acts. But so part of the parts of the body were cut off and then they were sometimes cooked or, or, or barbecued right, on a fire and then fed to them. They would find it revolting only because they thought that they were eating a part of their body. Yeah, just like you can you can make a punishment a non-punishment. You know, punishing punishing someone by putting them in a dark room can be made a non-punishment by explaining to them the truth behind it. 
in the same way, you know, if it's okay to eat fried chicken, why is it not okay to eat a fried finger? I mean, you eat chicken fingers, but you can't eat this finger. It feels it feels yucky, right? It's it's, a, it's even the thought of it is revolting, is it not? You know, you can eat fish fingers, yeah. <laughs> but if someone says these are human fingers, how do you feel? Disgusted, right? It's a natural reaction. You feel disgusted because you'll say, oh, "We are not cannibals." You know, I eat meat, I eat fish, eggs, and so on, but I don't eat I don't eat humans. How did that human become human? How did that how did that human finger come take its form by eating chicken so you don't eat chicken so you rather you eat chicken but you don't eat human in other words what you're saying is i eat abc but i don't eat cba so when someone says i'm a vegetarian so i don't eat meat what is what is what does the cow do? What is beef? Grass rearranged. No. I'm not advocating you know being or not being a vegetarian. It's, that's not that's a personal choice, you know. But I'm just questioning what is his personal choice? How much you know? I, do you agree with this? Does it make sense to you? If it does, then carry on. If it doesn't make sense, then just question. Always be open-minded. I think that is a good principle, philosophy to have all your life. Just always be open-minded about anything. When people say, I am a strict vegetarian. There are vegetarians and there are strict vegetarians. And then there are vegans. So please don't think I'm mocking anyone, okay? I'm, I'm not. Although you might feel that I am. I'm not. I certainly am not. I myself was once a vegetarian. I was a strict vegetarian. I, you know, I, I went, I took the whole path, right? So I was a non-vegetarian. Then I became a semi-non-vegetarian or a semi-vegetarian. Then I was a strict vegetarian. Then I was a make-believe vegetarian. Others thought I was vegetarian, but I was not. <laughs> My mother thought I was vegetarian. <laughs> because it seemed like, you know, I, got a, I earned a lot of respect by calling myself by pretending to be a vegetarian. Like everyone, none, none, of, none of them were at home vegetarians, and I was. So I was different. I was special. I used to tell people, why you eat meat? I'm a vegetarian. Be a vegetarian. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever can be used to make yourself stand out. An ailing mind clings on to that. To make a pedestal for yourselves. Ugly, yucky, disgusting, but that is what it was. So I pretended to be a vegetarian when, you know, I was very, when I was very young and very foolish. Now I'm not so young and not so foolish, but back then I was very young and I was, I was more foolish than young back then. But so it was that I used to pretend to be a vegetarian. But now I understand that even the mere fact of me, you know, if, let's just say I felt like I wanted to be a vegetarian and then I come out and say, I'm a vegetarian. Sometimes people ask because, you know, from monks, this is usually a question that people ask when they bring in alms or sometimes when you go on an alms round, when they serve alms food, sometimes people question. Swami answered, fish? Swami answered, meat? Is that okay? 
I mean, that is out of respect. Uh, certainly. And I have a lot of respect for people who, who might ask that question. But I don't expect that from you. So you don't have to be like that. So if I come to arms at your place, don't worry, not going to happen, don't worry. Right? Or, you know, if you're here and you have to offer something, you don't have to ask. Swaminasa, meat, fish. You don't have to ask that because you need to be of this understanding. That is why you don't need to ask it. You need to understand that fish is just plankton or some other seaweed rearranged. Meat, let's say beef. Is it bad to eat beef? Now, in certain cultures, you know, they don't do that. Again, this is not me mocking, so please don't take it the wrong way. Right? If you take this the wrong way, then you will be, you, you'll be agitated and angry about the sermons itself, and then you, it's, no, it's like when, you're, when you don't like the look of your face, you cut your nose off. Don't do that. If this part you don't agree with, then just put on mute. I'll put my hand down in just a moment, and you can start listening to it again. Unmute it yourself. Hmm? So in certain cultures, they give a lot of respect to certain animals. They revere certain animals. So it's okay to eat chicken, but it's not okay to eat, say, beef. What if you fed the same thing to both animals? Now, this is because, you know, that certain animals are a symbol. That I understand. They, they, they symbolize. I mean, the statue is a symbol. The robe is a symbol. This is a symbol. So, for instance, you know, if you were walking around and you stepped on, let's say, uh, you know, a, a T-shirt that belongs to a lay person, you might not care too much about it. But say if you stepped on a robe, for instance, you know, you might get a little bit worried about that. Not worried in that sense, but, you know, out of respect, you might say, oh my gosh, you know, I stepped on a robe. That's terrible. Because in your heart and in your mind, it's a symbol. Right? It's a symbol of the Buddha. It represents that, uh, that part I get. But what about the dead animal? When an animal is dead, you know, that is just things rearranged. Uh, so we don't advocate killing of any animal of any sort, right? whether it's holy or not holy. Right? That, then it doesn't matter whether, you know, what size the animal is, big or small. Killing is wrong. But when asked the question, are you vegetarian or non-vegetarian? Or do you only eat certain types of meat and you know, do you not eat other types of meat? You have to ask yourself the question, why do I feel that one meat is different to another? Sometimes, you know, once it's cooked, you can't tell the difference. But if you eat, say, chicken, but you don't eat beef, you know, is it not just the same raw materials reconfigured, configured in a different way? I, eat, I don't eat A, B, C, D, but I eat... DCBA. And I also do eat CBDA. But I don't eat ABCD. Down in the gut, it's all broken down into its constituent parts, right? And then it's just the same stuff. Grass turns to beef in a cow's gut because the cow has DNA that makes it. The cow's blueprint has the code that encodes the nutrients, the elements that go into the gut in that fashion. Whereas a chicken has DNA that encodes the same stuff that goes into the chicken's gut in that order. 
you are only human because in your cells you have a DNA that rearranges the stuff that you put in in that order. That's all. So, because we can't digest some vegetation, like we can't digest you know, grass and things like that, but we want the nutrients in the grass. So what do you do then? You can't eat grass because you can't digest the grass. You don't have the gut bacteria that digest grasses, right? So what do you do? But you want the nutrients that are in there. Nutrients that it's taken from the soil and part of the sun, the sunlight, right? So what do you do when you can't eat grass? You eat grass rearranged. So what are these machines that rearrange grass? There are factories that rearrange grass. Hmm? Cow. Yes. And goats. And lamb. These are the machines that rearrange grass in a format that you can digest and then ingest. So the question is not really, is it, is it right or wrong to be vegetarian or non-vegetarian? The question is, what do you think you are when you think you are vegetarian? What do you think you're actually doing when you think, when you're, when you think you're sticking to a vegetarian diet? What's really going on? Ask yourself that question. See, always look for what's going on. What is the science behind it? What is the truth behind it? And then all these other questions will, have, will come up with their own answers. You don't need to worry about that. Just seek the truth. Seek the truth. All the other questions will be answered. So are you all vegetarians or non-vegetarians? From here on? <laughs> Once again, if anyone feels offended, I don't intend to offend anybody. Right? So please, no offense and hopefully none taken. This is not meant to offend anyone. I, I don't think I, can, I could offend any of you here. If you were, then you wouldn't be coming here by this point. You know, none of this is meant to, meant to offend. But we might have the odd online listener, maybe, you know, the first time they've tuned into one of these talks. And they are there, a, a big part of their identity might be being vegetarian. And then the very first sermon they listen to, Swami Nance is making scathing remarks about vegetarians. No, these are not, <laughs> these are not any remarks about vegetarianism. These are just questions to get people to think. You know, when they make their choices about life, when you make your life choices and preferences, please do understand what those preferences entail. Do understand what those choices entail before you sign the dotted line. Otherwise, you take yourself on a path, you, carry, you take up a ritual or some kind of practice, right, and you just carry on doing it just because someone said it was the right thing to do or because it was the tradition in the family, Right? And, and then you just carry on doing it without stopping to question, what is it that I'm actually doing? You know, let's just say there's some physical ailment because of a, some malnourishment, some medical physical condition. And to, to cure it, some person has to be fed beef, let's just say. Like I say, there's some, some very peculiar disease, some ailment of the body. To cure that, you have to, you have to eat beef. Now, I know that there will be some individuals who would rather die than eat it. I can think of plenty of people who would rather die 
they steadfastly hold on to the fact that they are vegetarian. So I would rather die than break this pact that I have formed with myself that I'm a vegetarian. Now, if you have to eat beef versus you have to die, if you have to decide whether do I between eating beef or dying, I think each, let's just say, each and every one of you have to make that choice. You know, which one is more valuable? No, no, don't answer. They'll think I said it. <laughs> you got to answer, answer this question for yourself. Which one is more valuable? The cow's life or human life? Again, I know people will say, huh, ah, how can you say that? Every life is holy. Every life is, valuable, is as valuable as the other. So how can you say a cow's life is less, more or less valuable than a human life? My answer is, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. All I said was, you've got to think for yourself. You've got to understand for yourself which one is more, more valuable. Is it a cow's life or a human life? Is it right to kill? Absolutely not. In fact, the, strict, the, the Buddha's code of discipline requires us to not consume an animal product, if we know that the animal has been slaughtered to produce the meat as, a, as an offering. If we know that, that, that the animal has been slaughtered to produce meat as an offering, then we have to reject that. We can't accept that. So then how come we can sometimes, you know, at the monastery, sometimes, you know, sometimes you, you, you offer that. So how come we can eat that then? Because that animal was not slaughtered on our behalf. That we know. Then you'll say, but was it not slaughtered for someone? And is that someone not you? No, that's not the point. It cannot be slaughtered to be fed to a bhikkhu or a monk or a member of the Buddha Sasana. It is slaughtered. Yes, of course it is slaughtered to feed somebody. They don't just slaughter animals for the sake of it. They slaughter it to feed somebody, but it cannot be slaughtered to be fed to us or to offer to a monk. Then we have to reject that. See, the, the concept here is the Buddha laid down these rules because of all the things that people used to say back then. They expected a different kind of lifestyle from a monk. They expected that monks ought to be sometimes vegetarian because back then in society, people's holiness, their virtuousness was measured in those ways. If you are a vegetarian, you were considered to be more holy and more virtuous than a non-vegetarian. You know, you could be the worst man, or the worst human being known to mankind, but if you were vegetarian, you were holier than the rest. You could be a robber, you could be a philanderer, you could be you know, you know, a, a murderer, but if you were vegetarian, then you were more holy. Right or wrong? Don't ask me that. Don't ask me that. This is just food for thought. Each one to himself. Think for yourself. Anyhow, that's not what I wanted to talk about today. Let's try and understand a little bit more about how the mind works.
Because all this is to help free the mind from its bonds, from its attachments. A big part of what the mind is attached to is this pumpkin that you bring and sit on, this, on these chairs. But once you are able to free yourself from that, there is still more to do. There's attachment to physical things and there's attachment to sensuality. These are two different things. It's a bit like this. Let's say you liked strawberries. It's one thing to like strawberries, it's another thing to like strawberry flavor or the taste of strawberry. They're not one and the same. It's one thing to like strawberries and it's another to like the flavor or the taste of strawberry. It is because the taste of strawberry is more important than strawberry that today you can eat strawberry flavored ice cream or strawberry flavored milk and you don't mind that even when you know that it is not real strawberry in there. I mean on the box it will say so strawberry flavored ice cream and you know well and truly that there is no strawberry in here sometimes they might have pieces of jelly right which gives you the impression that you're having strawberry but you know that it is not strawberry you're having it's only strawberry flavored which one do you think is harder to give up the strawberry or the flavor of strawberry it is a flavor or the taste of strawberry there's a point where the mind needs the taste of strawberry from strawberries. It can't come from anything else. It has to come from strawberries because it thinks that the taste is in the strawberry. Then there's an attachment to the strawberry. Yeah? Does that make sense? But there comes a point where the mind realizes that the strawberry flavor is not in the strawberry. It is not contained in the strawberry. And when you understand that, you no longer need the strawberry but you still need the strawberry flavor. So you let go of the strawberry. The mind is able to release the attachment on the strawberry, but not the strawberry flavor. That it still seeks. All right, let me draw it on the board just to make it clear. I see a few blank faces. Right. Strawberry, this has the flavor of strawberry. So this is stage one. The mind needs the strawberry as the flavor of strawberry or the taste of strawberry is in the strawberry. This is stage one. Stage two, the mind realizes that the taste of strawberry, okay, the strawberry flavor, is not in the strawberry. So, let's just say uh, I'm going to draw flavor, uh, something like this. What is the blue dot? The taste of strawberry, strawberry flavor, okay? So, strawberry flavor is contained in the strawberry, okay? 
Understand though? Yes. The strawberry flavor is contained in the strawberry. This is the view that the mind initially holds. So if the strawberry flavor is part and parcel of the strawberry, then to enjoy, I need what? For pleasure, I need strawberries. I have to eat strawberries. There comes a point where you realize that the strawberry flavor is not in the strawberry. That flavor is distinct to the object. Flavor is one, the object is another. Now here's what happens. When you realize that, This is what happens. Hmm? Flavor is distinct to, this, to the object. You still want the flavor. Even up here, what did you want? What did you want back here? Still the flavor. Because how does the mind perceive the world? Now you know the drill. Sight, sound, smell, taste. What else? No, not smell, taste. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. I and sight, uh, sound and ear, smell and nose, and taste and tongue, touch and body, right? So for the mind to perceive the world, it has to receive sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, because its receptors are the eye, ear, nose, tongue and body, okay? So that is how the mind understands and perceives the world. So the mind wishes to experience taste of strawberry. And if the taste of strawberry is inherent in the strawberry, it is, if it is part of the strawberry, then to experience the taste of strawberry, it has to have a strawberry. It doesn't understand any other way right now. This is stage one. Later on, we come to the point where the mind realizes, which is what you're going to understand in a moment if you, if you haven't understood already, perhaps you have already, the fact that strawberry flavor is distinct to the strawberry itself. This flavor, this taste of strawberry is not in the strawberry. Now see, there, I'm, I'm actually trying to explain to you why I'm giving you this lesson. Objectives of the lesson. You do that for in your classrooms, right? Here are the objectives of this lesson. Once you learn the objectives, then it makes more meaningful to engage in that lesson. So the objective of this upcoming lesson, ladies and gentlemen, is... <laughs> Is to, is to help you understand that if you are able to separate these two things, okay, if you are able to realize that this is a very distinct sensation to this object, then you no longer go after the strawberries. So you now don't have to eat strawberries. You don't have to go looking for strawberries. You don't need to grow strawberries. You don't need to go shopping for strawberries. So if you don't have to eat strawberries, then you don't need your arms. Because you don't have to eat strawberries. Yeah? You don't have to go looking, you don't have to go buying strawberries. You don't have to go to the supermarket, walk down the fruit aisle, vegetable aisle, looking for strawberries. Because now you realize it's not the strawberry I want, I just want the flavor. I just want the taste of strawberry. That's the second point. Later on you come to, so then by this point you don't want the strawberry. You just want the taste. Yeah? Stage three, of course, now by this point you realize that there's no need for the strawberry. So, you're just left with this. And then you realize there's no point in the flavor either. 
there's no essence in the flavor there's no essence in the taste there's this pleasure that i think was in the in the taste is not in there either once that happens you can let go of that also now there is nothing you're attached to hmm? this is when we have we start by this point it is it is said that by the, when you come to this point you have attained the state of sakrudagam where your attachment is no longer to physical objects you look for pleasure but not from the objects you don't need to you don't need to seek pleasures from objects but you still seek pleasure in sensations sensual desire is still there but not the desire for objects so it is no longer that objects have to give you that desire or the, those those pleasures those comforts you don't seek in the objects and then when you come to this point right when you no longer have a desire or an attachment to 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 taste itself right then you come to the point of anagami and 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 forward from there so here's your journey so the whole point of me trying to explain to you that what you are these bodies are essentially just matter reconfigured right you are just a reconfiguration of the stuff that you have put in through your mouths right so is this not chicken by the way this is a strawberry i'm pointing at yes but is it not chicken is it not chicken hmm it is how is how so a chicken died in your backyard right Three weeks later, it was part of the soil, and then you had a strawberry, and you threw the seed, right? And then from there grew a strawberry plant, and now you have a strawberry tree. Do they grow on trees? No, vines, right? Strawberries, trees, bushes. Thank you. So there was a bush, and now you had a strawberry. So that was chicken. So do vegetarians eat strawberries? Sorry, sorry. Let's come back. <laughs> So what we understand then this is these are just configurations of matter. So once you realize that these are just configurations of matter, you are no longer in this internal argument about how important this strawberry is. You you know that that place that you had given to the strawberry, the physical form is no longer there's no there, it doesn't sustain itself any longer. But you still want the flavor. You still like it, you still enjoy it. so to get to that to get to that i need to have this discussion about whether the sensual experiences that you have the sensations that you have are actually in the object itself now this is a conversation we had a while ago but it's time to bring that back here because we've started discussing how these objects are formed and then that will complete the picture as we're talking about strawberries and their flavor you know it is a, a really a, a really relevant and really pertinent point to talk about because these three sensations that are namely taste smell and touch are very peculiar because now here's when you'll understand that what a fool you've made yourself these three sensations touch taste and smell let's let's come up, let's come to sound and sight later okay 
I'm talking about now touch, smell, and taste. These three sensations, it's very easy to convince you that they are not, they don't really exist out there. It's so easy to convince. Sight and sound, we can come to later. I'm going to help you realize that taste and smell and touch, the sensations that you experience, are not out there in the world. Let's take a simple example. This is a cube of sugar. What is it? A cube of sugar. Okay? We've talked about this before. So this will be a, it'll serve as a reminder for some. And if you, have, if you weren't there back then, then this will help you to understand. Your tongue, being the taste organ, or the organ of taste, does not really sense tastes. Now this will sound really absurd because we've learned all our lives that the tongue senses taste. In fact, so much so that we learn, when we learn the tongue, we split it up into its regions, didn't we? Down here was sweet, yeah? And the, on these sides, sour, something, sour, yeah. Then you had the, at the back, bitter. And then he said why it is bitter there, because it's to, it is to stop you from swallowing things that might be harmful to the body. Yeah, that, you know, it's a, that's a nice argument. Like when you take, you know, medicines, you know, like pills. Prescribed drugs, are typically, they taste bitter, prescribed drugs. Because young children, they're not supposed to take drugs without the knowledge of their parents. And young kids, they don't like bitter taste. Typically, nobody likes bitter taste. But usually, young children, they don't like bitter taste. So if they ever put something in their mouths and it tastes bitter, the tendency is, chances are, they'll spit it out as they are supposed to, because without the knowledge of, a, of an adult, a responsible adult, they're not supposed to take it. So that's a reasonable argument. And then, so we have sour, bitter, sweet, what, what have I missed? Salt, where's that? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah? Hmm? Where? Middle, yeah. Okay, thank you. Salt, sour, bitter, sweet. That'll do. If you sense anything else, it'll somewhere. It's somewhere. It is somewhere. Oh, you also now have umami. Umami, yes. Umami. We talked about umami. Were you there for that sermon? Talked about umami a long time ago. Yes. Umami. So that is the taste of uh, MSG. Monosodium glutamate. What we refer to as Ajinomoto. That is a brand name. That the chemical name is monosodium glutamate. It's what gives flavor to your uh, dishes. You used a lot in Asian cuisines, right? Chinese, Mongolian, that sort of thing. It's used a lot. So that is a, uh, the fifth taste that scientists have recently discovered. So anyhow, the truth is that your tongue doesn't taste any of this. So your tongue is not a taste organ. What the tongue can do is this, and hear me out. What the tongue can do is, it can detect certain molecular shapes 
and trigger an electrical impulse. That's what the tongue can do. So it doesn't pick up taste. What it picks up is molecular structures, shapes, shapes of molecular structures, right, and trigger an electrical impulse. So where's taste there? There's nothing to do with taste there. See, if I were to expand, put the tongue under the microscope, okay, you'd have something like this. So this is the, the surface of the tongue. So this is the this is the tongue. This is part of the tongue. Magnified. Okay. So this is the tongue. Magnified. So this is the surface of the tongue. And here you have a structure or a shape which is able to detect molecular shapes. Now you see this sugar cube? This sugar cube can fit nicely into this slot. So free roaming sugar cubes in the, in the substances that you put into your mouth, say you're taking a, a soft drink, right? So these sugar cubes, they don't, obviously they're not as cubes, they're dissolved sugar, but just to keep it very simple, I have a seven-year-old in, in my audience, I have to help make sense to her as well. So there's a sugar cube. Imagine this is how sugar comes, and it's floating in the in the in the in the in the food that you have taken into your mouth, okay? And it's floating around in the liquid. So you drink it, and these sugar cubes—they're looking. They're not looking for anything, but as if by coincidence, this sugar cube just goes and fits into this slot in the tongue. All right. What happens now is the moment that happens, this is connected to a wire. It's a wire. Your nerve cells are wires. And what do wires conduct? Electricity. So they conduct an electrical current. So what happens is the moment that this slots into that, into that, into that slot, an electrical impulse is generated. This electrical signal now goes all the way from tongue through the, through the respective nerves, right? And your spinal column, no, it doesn't go that, that way. It goes up through your, through your brain, through the back of your head into the part of the brain that is responsible for taste. So that electrical signal was what was required in the relevant part of your brain, but this instrument that we call the tongue is the only instrument that you have. Let me know if you have another that can do this. There's, this is the only instrument in your body that can trigger an electrical impulse when impacted with a molecular shape. that takes a signal right down to, the, to your brain's taste center. To your taste center. So what does the tongue do again? Molecular structure, impact, electrical signal, taste center. Right, think about the nose for a second, which is another organ. Same principle, molecular structure, impact, signal, now to the which center? To the smell center. That's what happens. So what if we disconnected this wire that goes from the tongue to the taste center and we plugged it to the smell center? What do you think might happen then? Here's the tongue. and the brain, you have the taste center, you have the smell center. Okay. <clears throat> here's the tongue and here's the nose. 
in both places what you had was a structure molecules can go and fit into those slots and an electrical signal is in, is generated <clears throat> from the tongue it goes to the taste center from the nose it goes to the smell center okay so this is how your bodies are constructed what if we were to do this we call frankenstein who rewires your nervous system and we, he plugs this to the smell center and this to the taste center now what would happen when you drink something or eat something what would you experience smell you would experience smell now this might be you might think this is this is hard to believe but i will prove this to you in just a moment that it is not so hard to believe for the time being just ride along so if you were to do this when something touches your one of these centers one of these places on the tongue you would experience smell now don't ask me what smell that would be we'll come to that in a moment so you'll ask me if it's a sugar cube what am i going to smell so i mean is it going to be sweet or sour well if it's sugar it has to be sweet right no no let's come to that in a moment for the time being let's just make sure we understand this if then let's say you hold a a dish right there's a an aroma like a let's say a a bowl of noodles right and there's a there's the aroma and that triggers again a nerve ending and it takes a signal to your brain but this time it's going to the taste center so when you hold that to your nose maybe a rose right or this bowl of noodles now what you, what's going to happen to you are you going to experience smell or taste you're going to experience taste so dear children what does that convince you what does this teach us is smell and taste characteristics of objects or are they simply the way the mind along with help from the brain experience things that happen in the outside world is it the first or the second the second one the very fact that you could just crisscross these wires and experience a different sensation is evidence to you that neither taste nor smell are intrinsically in the object they are not contained within the object that is why you can do this so you might ask well is it really possible so i mean are you are you really suggesting that this is possible well here's my evidence of that now this you can no don't try it at home if you were to take a a log or something some hard object and bang yourself on the back of your head what what happens if you ever had a fall hmm, or someone hits you on the back of your head maybe you go and bang your head head on a wall what do you see you see flashes of light right but did you actually see light did you, were you actually looking at a at a light source no So if you weren't looking at a light source how come then you saw light now we learned this at school you all remember this this is you know we learned it for basic and simple science right the why why that why is it that you see flashes of light when you are hit on the back of your head because the optic center is on the back of your head so when there's an insult to the back of your head right when something bangs on the back of your head that part of the brain is triggered 
meaning there's an electrical signal that that triggers that part of the head and when that happens now you see light was there a light source put in front of your eye no isn't that proof then that you don't need light to see light <laughs> you don't need a light source to see light so what is this light that you see then when you open your eyes and you see a sight what is that you see then is it the light that's coming from the outside or is it merely how the mind perceives these electrical signals i need to start thinking about this think about this let's go through that again when we open our eyes the eye receives light from the outside falls on the retina you know the story here right electrical signal goes to your optic center and you see it would be wrong would it not to think that what you are seeing or this you know right now you can see things right you can see things i need you to get out of this thinking that what you are seeing is actually what is what the eye is seeing that is not what you are seeing the way you perceive this world is not something that your eye does it's actually what your mind does so things on the outside are actually not like this at all they're not like this at all your mind is creating this world that you are perceiving right now this is your mind's interpretation of the world this is your mind's interpretation of electrical signals that the brain receives but because it is received in different centers of the brain different rupa are generated as a result your mind is constantly interpreting electrical signals and this is the way it's doing it see this is as much an electrical signal as this this light is triggering a cell in the back of your retina which generates an electrical signal yeah this sound or this vibration rather than a sound this vibration you know this is a vibration right air is so as i as i knock this table yeah the air that is in contact with this table vibrates okay you know <clears throat> it would be wrong for me to assume that everyone's been in that science class so that is why i'm going down to the basics okay so please don't think i'm condescending to anyone i'm just explaining simple basic facets of science because there are very young people in the audience and they may not understand this when i clap what happens is the palms of my hand vibrate and when it vibrates the air that is in contact with the palms of my hand begin to vibrate so there are air molecules right so your 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 oxygen molecules your nitrogen molecules whatever just air they all vibrate these vibrations one vibrates the next and that carries on this vibration carries on until it reaches your ears and and that at that point your eardrums vibrate to the same frequency and when that vibrates those eardrums the vibration of your those eardrums are able to generate an electrical signal 
that electrical signal now goes to your brain. When you opened your eyes, it was an electrical signal. When you listened, it was also an electrical signal. How does the mind know that one is seeing and the other is hearing? How does the mind know this? That is what the brain does. Because those two nerve endings end in different parts of the brain, that is why your mind perceives this as sight and that as sound. As I say, if you were to crisscross these wires, now you wouldn't be able to tell that this is sight and this is sound. If I were to unplug the wire that goes to your brain that carries your sound signals and plug it, say, to your smell center, when I do this, you go, nice, do that again. <clears throat> they would. So our brains are wired so that your brain can help the mind interpret various stimuli that come from the outside. But it is not sight, nor sound, nor smell, nor taste, nor touch that the mind receives. The mind ultimately only receives an input from the brain and the brain only picks up electrical signals. See, just like the same current that lights up the bulb turns the fan. Hmm? It's the same current, right? The same electrical current that comes from the electricity board down through the wires right, into your home, right, down to the... Um, to the uh, what do you call that thing? Help. Distribution point, right? And then down through the wires, right? To your copper lines into your, into your electrical appliances, right? See, the same current can turn the fan, can turn on the light, can work the speakers. Right? It's the same current that does that. So the same current taken to different centers can do different things. Because these appliances, these instruments, they are designed to make use of the same current, but do perform a different function. See, that's exactly what the brain does. Now let's just take this analogy. There's a wire that goes to that fan. Okay? If you were to unplug that wire and plug it to this light, for instance, when it went to the fan, what did the fan do? It rotated. Now if I unplug it and plug it to the bulb, what do you think it's going to do? Rotate? Do <laughs> you think the light's going to go like this? Will it? No. So whether it rotates or lights up is not a characteristic of the current, is it? That's the point I'm trying to get to you, get across to you. Whether something rotates or flares up or vibrates like the speaker does, right? The camera, right now, it's using the same current that is sent from the board, electrical board, to light or to, to turn a fan. It's using that to capture electrical impulses on a, on a digital board. So, is it the current that does that? Is it the current that does that? Do you think the current can turn an object? Do you think current can light an object? No, it's the device that makes use of the current to convert one form of energy to another form. Now we learned this, this is really basic stuff. Conversion of energy from one form to another form. Now take a moment to think about what goes on in your brain. This is a form of energy. We call it sound energy. Actually it's not sound energy, it's vibrational energy. 
Okay, this is a form of energy. This vibrational energy, vibration is just movement, that's it. See, you're, you're not hearing this, are you? You're not hearing this. As in, you're not hearing a vibration, you're hearing a sound. Do you see the difference between the two? What is out here are really vibrations, but you don't hear vibrations, do you? You hear sound. When you hear a sound, do you feel like you're hearing a vibration? No. In the same way, when you see, when you see a sight, you might think that you're seeing light, but it's not light that you see, because light never reached your mind. It didn't even reach your brain. Light can only go as far as your eye. From there on, it is no longer light. From light to brain, electrical current, from brain to mind, it's something else. This is, these are all translations, conversions that happen along the way. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah? These are conversions that happen along the way. So if that is the case, why then do we think that the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste and touch that we experience, we get from the objects? Why do we feel that it is intrinsic in the object? Why do we feel that the object contains the sound? The object contains the smell. Take a moment, you, you know, you actually do feel this way. And my ask of you is to try and break that bond. Begin to understand that taste doesn't come from the thing that you put into your mouth. So what taste is chocolate? What does chocolate taste of? What does chocolate taste of? Don't tell me chocolate now. And don't tell me sweet either. Because sweetness, the taste of sweet, or the, the sensation of sweet, is not something that is contained in chocolate. Chocolate is just molecules. Let's take a glucose molecule. It has a shape. Six carbons. Hydrogens. Oxygens and hydrogens, right? So there are hydrogens. Where does the other hydrogen go? Ah. Six carbons, 12 hydrogens, and six oxygens. Can I just leave it as this for the time being? Okay. So there are six oxygens that have to go, this is a shape. Now that makes sense, right? So six carbons like this. Excuse me. And the oxygens and the hydrogens. Okay, so it's a hexagonal shape. But for simplicity's sake, this is what we have. So this is a molecular shape. This molecular shape is able to go and fit into a part of your tongue. There's a slot for it. So where you say the tongue has the sweet center, right? There the tongue is the tongue has receptors that are complementary to this shape. So how do you say then? that it is sweetness that you experience in the mind, uh, beg your pardon, in the chocolate. This is just a shape, a molecular shape. How does a shape have a taste? What taste is a circle? What is the taste of a circle? Hmm? What is a ter what, what, what is a circle taste of? What does a square taste of? 
Square. What does it taste of? Or a triangle. What does a triangle taste of? You say no. Really? Really? You say they don't have a taste? But they do. So what does a hexagon taste of then? Hmm? You have an answer. You will tell me that it tastes of sugar or sweetness. So how does that happen then? These shapes, they have complementary receptors in the organs that are part of your body. And when those two, then the shape and the complementary receptor come to contact, come into contact, an electrical current is generated and that electrical current is travel, travels to your brain and then the brain does the job of interpreting or translating rather. It translates it into rasa rupa or taste rupa. That is what the taste center of your brain is able to do. It doesn't convert it into sight. Neither does it convert it into sound or smell. What the taste center does is it converts that electrical signal to a rasa rupa. If that signal, that current, that nerve, that nerve fiber was rewired to the optic center, then what you get is a rupa rupa. Because what the brain does is it doesn't care where the current comes from. It doesn't actually. The brain has no concern at all where the current comes from. As long as there's an electrical signal that arrives, the brain's job is input, transform, output. That's it. Because the brain's job is to serve the mind. The brain is the mind's slave. It will either take inputs to it or it will take outputs away from it. That is what the brain is there to do. Serve the mind. That's what the brain does. And also, it maintains the rest of this body. Right? It orchestrates the functions that keep this body intact so that the mind can use this as its home. Because the mind needs the body so that it can understand the world. The mind needs the body so that it can experience sights, sounds, smells, taste and touch. Because it is not just enough to have an eye, a ear, a nose and a, and a tongue. Because it also needs a digestive system. Otherwise, how can it replenish? How can it repair? How can it maintain? How can it carry you know, all the un, un, unwanted substances out, out of the body? All of that is necessary to, to perform this job. So, you know, start to think of these bodies as this is the housing for the mind. This is the, this is the palace in which the mind lives. Right? This, is the, this is the cell in which the mind lives. The mind makes use of this body to experience the world. So here's how then the five sense organs that you have, which are open to the outside world, receive stimuli from the outside world and convert it into an, a message that the mind can in, understand. So now do you understand? Would you accept then for me to, if I were to tell you that chocolate doesn't taste of chocolate? Are you willing to accept that now? Chocolate doesn't taste of chocolate. So what does chocolate taste of? If it doesn't taste of chocolate. What does chocolate taste of? Hmm? There's no taste. 
chocolate has no taste so then why do you eat chocolate <clears throat> now i'm also going to explain to you something a little subtle here but you can all understand if you pay attention and listen carefully i asked you the question so then why do we eat chocolate <clears throat> you'll tell me i eat chocolate sominance because i want the taste of chocolate that's why we eat chocolate clearly what i need you to come to right now or just for the moment for the time being the understanding that i want you to come i want all of you to come to for the, for the time being is that the taste of chocolate is not in the chocolate but of course i understand i understand and i agree with you that if if you didn't eat chocolate you don't get the taste of chocolate so you you know you can't just take a, a lemon and squeeze it on your tongue and and say you know if it, if the chocolate doesn't have chocolate taste and i could just i could just do a you know just about anything and get the same taste couldn't i no it doesn't work like that <clears throat> that is because of the way your brains are wired see your your tongue is wired a certain way and you can't change that wiring can you 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 can't you know you can't just change the wiring of your body see it's so 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 intricate you can't change it it's so complex if you could if you were to unplug the nerve endings here and plug it somewhere here and now you can just squeeze a lemon like you know so these these are the sour centers right so here you have the sweet center here you have the sour center right if you were able to rewire them okay and then squeeze a lemon now you sense sweet i need you to understand that that is not because the lemon has sour and chocolate has sweet that is the bit i want you to understand for the time being if that were the case this would not be possible what would not be possible rewiring would not be possible go back to the analogy if the current that was sent to your home was sent to turn the fan you couldn't unplug it and plug it to a bulb and expect it to light because then you'd have to go when when you go and pay your electricity bill at the end of the month right or you place your order for electric electricity you'd have to tell them i need uh 3 or i need 30 watts of turning current i need 15 watts of lighting current i need 200 watts of heating current so please can you send me these three types of current and then they'll plug it to three wires and send it to your home is that how it works no but they do ask you how what appliances do you have at home that they might ask you because that is to calculate the total wattage not to ask you what that watt is being used for not what the current is being used for because that is dependent on the appliance it matters not at the electrical station right or at the electricity board it doesn't matter what you're going to use this current for they just want to know how much current you need because it is the appliance that converts electrical energy to whichever form of energy that it is being used for so then you understand clearly that elect lighting current i mean there's no such thing as lighting current it's just electrical current you know that there is no such thing called heating current there's no such thing as turning or rotating current 
There's no such thing as sound current. Yeah? You understand this? There's no such thing as washing current. So, you, you know, the current that goes into your washing machine, you know, you, you can't buy that separately from the electric board. You can't do that. You just buy current. You plug it to your appliance and it does the job. So, therefore, where you have the cooker today, say if you sold your home or someone, you know, you rented it out, where you have your cooker today, someone might decide to put their refrigerator. Won't it work? It will. So if you ever rented in the past, or if you're planning on renting, either renting some, your own property or renting someone else's property, right, where you have the plug tops or the blazers, do you have to go and label them? Now here's where the washing machine can go. Here's where the fridge can go. Here's where the fans can go. Don't plug the, <laughs> don't plug the washing machine here. Do you have to do that? No, you don't have to do that because for the current, it doesn't matter what the appliance is. Now, in the same way, but in the same way, for the brain, it doesn't matter where the signals are coming from. What matters is where they land, not where it's coming from. The brain has these centers which are responsible for converting whatever current comes its way into the respective sensation. That is why you can rewire your sense inputs and you'd still experience the world but in a slightly different way. So therefore, if you were to rewire the sound center to the taste center, when I, did, when I do this, you might go... That would be possible. Because we've rewired. Right? But remember, it's, the brain hasn't stopped at simply taking the input. Because the brain cannot interpret. The brain can only translate. They're two different things. Yeah? Interpretation is one, translation is another. So the brain does the job of translation. It does the translation so that now the interpreter can interpret. And who's the interpreter? The mind is the interpreter. So all the way until the mind, ladies and gentlemen, there is no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch. All there has ever been is light. There's been light. There's light out there, yes. But no sight. Light and sight are not the same thing. Vibration and sound are not the same thing. Yeah? Molecular structures and smell are not the same thing. You don't smell molecular structures. You smell rose. You smell chicken. You smell soap. This is what you smell. You smell jasmine. You don't smell shapes. So you don't smell, I smell squares today. <laughs> you don't do that, right? What's that hexagon I smell today? You don't do that. But that is what's really out there. Shapes. And you don't taste shapes either. Yeah, you taste sour. You don't taste octagons. Or you don't, you don't taste octagons. You, you, don't, you don't taste those things. You, ta you taste the taste of things. You taste flavor. Flavor is not contained in the food. It's not contained in anything you put into your mouth. All there is are shapes. And the same goes for touch. Now this, is, this can be good for any of you who are engaged in any physical activity, maybe some, doing some exercise. I think I probably mentioned it briefly in last week's talk. When we do exercise, you feel exhausted at a certain point. I'd say you, you want to do a few push-ups. Right? Maybe you promised yourself, I'm going to do two push-ups every day. <laughs> That's, that's the most I can manage, but I'm going to do two push-ups every day for the rest of the year. So you start your new year with that ambition, with that goal set for yourself, right? 
You do one and by the end of that one, tired, too tired, too tired, can't do two. Am I being too mean? Okay, okay, 200 then. Hmm? You want to do 200 push-ups, right? By the time you've done about 20, you're beginning to feel exhaustion. Yeah, you're beginning to feel my arms are aching, my feet are aching, my knees are aching, my back's hurting. Uh, you know, this is a really good karma stana to help you to overcome these obstacles. You know, if the body can't, it'll stop. It'll physically stop. Your body will stop. Now, this might go against medical advice because medical, you know, medical advice says, if it hurts, stop. Because that is the body's natural way of telling you enough. So, I agree. That if something hurts you, then don't continue doing it. It's, it doesn't help, you know, especially if you are recovering from something. Right? And doctor's advice would be, if you, if, when you try and do it, if it hurts, stop. That's good. Right? So don't continue. Stop. But my point is this. When you feel an ache, when you feel an ache, the point where it hurts, or the point where you think it hurts, it doesn't hurt so much. Because actually, there is no hurt there. There's no hurting there. There's only something rubbing against something else. Now, take the example of, say, I pinch my hand. Okay? When I pinch my hand, you know the sensation of pinching, right? right? Just do it for yourself for a second. As you pinch yourself, you know this, this feeling? That feeling is not here. It feels uncomfortable, it feels painful, yeah? That pain is not here. That is how the mind interprets that signal that comes from the brain. The brain is translating electrical impulses right now as you do this. These are electrical signals that are being sent. Now, let's just say, as you do this, we un unplug that and plug it to the sight center at the, back of your, at the back of your head. And if you did this, what would you see? What would happen? You'd see things. It wouldn't hurt at all. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt at all. In fact, you could, you, you could take a hammer and keep hammering your hand and you'd oh, nice. <laughs> that, that is what your reaction would be. Because it doesn't hurt here. This physical sensation of hurting does not happen at the, at the point of impact. It doesn't happen there. This is how your mind interprets that signal. Because the mind is responsible for the safekeeping of the body. So therefore, to stop physical injury to the body, the mind has to hurt. Now, to ensure that traffic flows properly on the streets of the town, who do the authorities have to hurt? They have to hurt the drivers by fining them if they drive on the wrong side of the road, if they drive on bus lanes, right? You have to fine the drivers. But is it, is it the drivers who are on the road and blocking the, the roads? No, it's the cars. But you only change behavior if it hurts. Yeah? So you have to hurt someone who can make a responsible decision so that a different outcome can be expected. You always have to hurt the person or the, or, or the, or the point where a decision can be made. 
So there's no point in hurting the hand when you when you pinch it because it's not the hand that decides whether I I got to move my hand or keep my hand. It's the mind that decides that. So for this, for the mind to now decide that it's time to move because because this is uncomfortable, the mind has to be hurt, not the body. Does that make sense at all? I'll try again. Ah, okay. Take a mosquito. Now, you know, with the rains, we have to be very careful about mosquitoes, right? So at homes, please make sure that, you know, there are no places where mosquitoes can breed. That's a sidebar. <laughs> because your lives are very important, you know, very, very, very valuable. So please ensure that there are no breeding places for mosquitoes in and around your homes, as we will do the same at the monastery as well. So coming back to the point, when a mosquito bites, right, the mind has to know to pull the arm away or to pull the hand away or to chase the mosquito away. It is the mind that has to do that. Ah, oh, no, here's a, here's, a, here's a good example of this. When there's a mosquito, say, on the hand, or say on the leg, right, what do you normally do? I mean, as, as good Buddhists, <laughs> I have to caveat that. <laughs> what do you normally do as, as, as a good law-abiding Buddhist? <laughs> Don't say slap. <laughs> what do you do? You chase it away. Right? So say, say it's on your back. That's the best place. Say it's on your back. You, you, you have a mosquito bite on your back. Right? Now, how do you chase it? With your hand, right? Hmm? With your hand. But where's the mosquito? On your back. So if the mosquito's on your back, what's the hand doing? Why is the hand getting involved? Think about this. Now, this might seem, uh, duh, Swami, is it, is it not obvious? No, there's something more subtle I'm trying to get across to you here, not just what you see outside. If it's the back that is being bitten, why is the hand getting involved? Why is the arm getting involved? Who's the one making the decisions here? The mind, exactly. It's the mind. Because if it was the back that hurt, then the arm wouldn't get involved. Then the back would have to sort itself out. But because it's not the back that hurts, and the mind it that hurts, now the mind gets into action. Right? The mind goes into action, and it makes use of everything that is within its power and within its control, do you get the point? It makes use of everything within its command and its control to save itself, not the back. The mind is not trying to save the back. What the mind is trying to do is to free itself from pain. What is this itself here? The mind. The mind is trying to save itself from pain. That is why now the mind is making use of other instruments that is available to them, to it, to free itself from pain. If it was the back that hurt, the arm wouldn't care a bit. The arm would say, why should I bother? If the back hurts, let the back worry about it. I'm not going to get involved. <laughs> but the arm has no say here. Because both the arm and the back are slaves to the mind. So therefore, it is the mind that hurts. So for this body to be protected, it is the mind that has to be pinched. It is the mind that has to be burnt. It is the mind that has to be punished. Otherwise, this body would not be able to sustain itself. When you are hungry, another good example. When you are hungry, what do you do? 
Hmm? What gets hurt? Do you think the stomach hurts? If the stomach hurts, then what's the what's the mouth doing after that? And this is the mouth, this is the stomach. If the stomach hurts, then the mouth should say, let the stomach worry about that, not my problem. And why are the arms, you know, all of a sudden going into action? Cooking, washing, uh, mixing, chopping, cutting, dicing, slicing, mixing, putting in the mouth, and the teeth, and the jaws, munching. Yeah, see, all this, because the stomach, the, the stomach hurts. So why are the other parts of the body getting involved when it's the stomach that hurts? See, if this gentleman was in pain, would I, would I have to worry about it? No, I, I would, sir. I, I, honestly, I would. Right? Because I care about you. Right? Don't you worry. Right? <laughs> but that, you know, to a side, right, just ignoring that for a moment, right? If the gentleman was in pain, what would I have to do? What would my arm have to do with that? Nothing, because my arm doesn't hurt. Yeah? For my arm to do something, to react and respond to that, when this gentleman is in pain, my arm also has to hurt. Then the arm gets into action. But the arm doesn't get into action because when the gentleman hurts, nothing, there's no, there's no influence, there's no impact on the arm. So why then, when there's a mosquito that's biting in the back, the arm goes into action? Why then, when you're hungry, your arms go into action, your fingers go into action, your jaws go into action, the rest of your body starts to go into action? Why? Who's the one that's getting hurt here? The mind is. Because the mind is the thing that has come under threat, the mind now starts to use everything within its power. Sound, help, help, help. I need something to eat. See, this is the mind. It's the mind that is hurt right now, not the stomach. So the sound now, now because someone understands this, whoever designed this, engineered this, right? What the, because the, the stomach can't fend for itself and it needs the help of all these other instruments that are attached to this body, what they did was they, they, they routed all the pain to the mind. I'll say that again. Okay, whoever designed this fantastic piece of engineering, right? Whoever designed this fantastic machine, right? To protect each and every part of this body and to make use of all the other parts of the body, or one for all and all for one, right? To make use of all the other parts of the body in the survival, in the maintenance, in the upkeep of one and every part of the body, what they did was they routed all the pain to the mind. Because now, when any part of your body hurts, all of the other parts of your body come to its rescue. Yes or no? Yeah. Why so? Because it's not the part of the body that hurts, it's the mind that hurts. So for the, for the leg when it hurts, to make use of the arm, the leg must inform someone to whom the arm belongs. And who's that someone? The mind. So therefore, for the leg to get any help for, of recovery, any hope of recovery, the, body, the leg must make that pain known to the mind. And then the mind will make use of whatever it has to go and rescue the leg. So therefore, it is not, not any of the parts of your body that really hurt. This hurtful experience, this hurtful sensation that you have, you know, pain essentially is all felt by, by the mind.
pain is felt by the mind. These are simply sensations. Now, if you study the skin, there are various receptors. There are heat receptors. There are touch receptors. There are pressure receptors. Okay? But neither heat, nor cold, nor pressure, nor pain, as you sense it, are sensed here. What they do is, they all convert those stimuli, or those insults, to electrical signals. And because those electrical signals are taken to various parts of the brain, they are interpreted differently. They are translated differently and they are interpreted differently. See, that's what's going on. Now, the long and short of all this is, now this you'll learn for science, but the long and, long and short of all this is, to explain to you, and the point I really want to get across to you is, try and break yourself from this thinking that the sensations that the mind experiences are in the objects themselves. They are not in the object. Color is not in the object. Color is how you perceive an electrical signal. Sound is not in an object. Sound is not the same as vibration. The mind is not receptive to vibrations. The eardrum is receptive to vibrations. Not even, the, not even the nerve cells, it's just the eardrum. These are all, you know, these are just agents sat on the peripherals of your body, right? These are agents waiting for stimuli. And when those stimuli come, they convert it all into an electrical signal because the body can only relay electrical signals, your nervous system can only relay electrical signals. They're all taken to the same, same brain, but different centers. That is why it has to be different centers as well. You know, why do they have different centers? Could it not all to be taken to one place? See, why, why, does, why is the brain not like this, for instance? Why, for instance, does your brain have different centers? Now you know this. The next day I'll, I'll bring a picture so you can all make sense of all this better, right? Now, this is just for the sake of this conversation, okay? These are not accurate, by the way. I do know, though, that the optic center is down here. I can't for the life of me remember where the rest of it is. Long time ago that was. So, say this is, where, uh, uh, this is where you sense touch, say this is where you sense smell, say this is where you sense uh, uh, sound, okay? Now, why is it that there are different centers in the brain to translate different signals? Why is it that it is not like this, for instance? One brain, all of it happens here, and everything can just come and relay to one wire. Can you, can you see from the back? Yeah? See, this is the ear, for instance. Okay, this is the, this is the nose. This is the, uh, the, the tongue. Okay, this is the rest of the body. You know, why is it not like this? Where whatever electrical current comes, it comes and drops it on the central wire and that just takes it to the brain. Would it, would it not have been much simpler if it were like that? But it's not like that. In fact, the nerve cells, the nerves that are in your ear, or your, your, say your toe, that is the longest nerve there is, it runs all the way, the length of your body, it runs all the way to your brain. So why does it have to do that? Now, there may be some places where one nerve cell might conduct that current to another, but those are dedicated 
nerves. So they don't carry multiple inputs from various places. So there's not a, there's not like, there's, it's not like there's a nerve cell that takes this, the message from your ear and your tongue. It doesn't do like that. There's one for the tongue, there's one for the ear. Why can't they both share the same one? Why not? Because it has to go to different centers in the brain. Why different centers in the brain? Absolutely. So that they can be distinguished and then interpreted or rather translated to mind language in a different way. And when the mind language is different, now the mind can interpret them differently. So you see, the whole construct is designed to help the mind to experience a rich world and not just a plain old world. The mind wants to experience variety. <clears throat> I'm going to end on this note. This is the real funny part. Once again, we talked about this. If you understand this, you'll realize how silly this, this existence is. And this need for separation, how meaningless it is. Okay? This is a shape. This shape, when held against your tongue, the same shape when held against your nose. The same shape. Okay? The same shape when held against your finger for touch. Okay? This is touch, taste, and smell. So, other nose, uh, tongue, and finger. Okay? What do you see here? It's the same shape, the same object. The mind interprets this, this, this in three different ways. Hmm? The mind interprets this shape when put in front of the nose as a smell, when put under the tongue or on the tongue as taste, and when put on by the finger as touch. But ultimately what is there? The same shape. Now, this will give you an insightful glimpse into how desperate the mind is to experience separation. See how, how desperate the mind is to experience separation. This is a perfect example of that. The mind is capable of, of, of inventing instruments which can interpret the same thing in three different ways. So much so that once it does it, now the mind thinks that I'm sensing three different experiences. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's the same shape. It has neither touch, no smell, no taste. It hasn't, it hasn't got any of those three things. But what the mind has been able to do is create an instrument <clears throat> those instruments being the, 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 the touch input, the smell input, and the taste input. These three instruments are able to take the stimuli which are identical, 
right? They, of an identical object in three different forms and feed it to the mind as an electrical signal or to the brain as an electrical signal to be then interpreted as three different sensations. When in fact, none of those three things are actually in the objects themselves. Why does the mind do this? You have to ask this important question. Why does the mind do this? It is because the mind wishes to experience separation. If it can't separate what really is, it will make believe separation by creating an instrument, by creating an, uh, you know, uh, you know, by creating an instrument which can actually go out into the world and bring in fake differences that don't really exist. But when they come into the mind, the mind now believes that those differences really do exist out there. That's why when you eat a papadam, the smell of papadam and the taste of papadam. Okay? It would be safe to assume that actually what you're sensing is the same thing. The smell of papadam, the taste of papadam, and the, and the touch of papadam, it's safe to assume that you're experiencing the same thing, but in three different ways. That is why papadam has such a, such a big place on the, on the culinary table. Because one object can give sensory sensations in multiple ways. So a papadam is a masterpiece. It's a magnificent invention. The same papadam can give smell, can give taste, can give touch, can give sight, and also can give sound. Something so simple as a papadam can, 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 can excite all the five organs of the body. I mean, really, papadam should not be selling for so cheap. <laughs> should they, really? Hmm? Don't you think so? You know, one object, buy one, get four free. Right? They give you the, all of it. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it bombards your sensations, your sensory organs. All five of them, in one munch, it can, it can give inputs to all five sense organs. So it, that's why I say it's a masterpiece. It's a one fantastic invention by a desperate mind. But at least when it comes to these three sensory inputs, you know, this is what the karma world is for. The sensual world is for this. Now you need to understand what, what a mirage the sensual world is, what a lie the sensual world is. This, this, this karma world that we live in, we are here to actually experience something that doesn't exist. That's how desperate the mind was to get yourselves here. Because touch doesn't exist. This hardness, that, you know, this roughness or this smoothness is not, you know, that, is, that sensation is not here. This toughness is not here. This smoothness is not here. There is something here, yes. But it's not what you sense. Your mind simply interprets it in this way. This is your interpretation, interpretation of it. The smell is certainly not here. Then how can anything in this world actually, actually smell of anything? You know, this world smells only to those who have noses. Otherwise, there are no smells. This world only tastes only to those who have tongues. Otherwise, there are no tastes in this world. Take out tongues, 
You couldn't talk about taste because taste does not exist. What exists are shapes. <laughs> what shape, what taste is a shape? What smell is a shape? Then you have to answer the question, what's, what taste is a triangle? What does a triangle taste like? What is a, what is a square taste like? Then you have no answer. Because that is what there is, shapes. There are shapes. But there are no tastes. There are no smells. So then why have you come into the sensual world? Because the mind wishes to separate. The same object, if you can experience it three times over, wouldn't that be nice? The same object. If you can experience the same thing three times over and then each time you, you think that it's a different thing, wouldn't that be nice? You know, it's like if you say you had short-term memory loss. You have you had short-term memory loss, right? So you you like to be driven in a car. Hmm? You go to a you go to someone's place and they say, "Nice car, can you give me a drive?" Yes, sure. So they say, "Hop on," and then you go on a drive. But say you have to pay for it, so hundred bucks for one ride. And by the time you ride, drive around and you get off the car, you forget that you've been on it. Yes, nice car. Can you give me a ride? Yeah, certainly, hundred dollars. <laughs> so you pay another hundred, and you go the same route in the same car, right? And then by the time you get back, you've forgotten that you've been on it. And then again, you say, nice car. Can I have a drive, please? Yeah, certainly. Hop on. <laughs> but hundred dollars. So you pay another hundred. Same car, same route, same journey, but you keep forgetting. Now, what do you think that is? Silly. Yes, don't you think that is silly? If you think that is silly, how silly is this? How silly is this then? When there is no taste out there, when there is no smell out there, and there is no touch out there, you know, like heat for example. <laughs> heat, you, you know what heat is, when you touch the hot iron, that's heat. When you, you, know, when you go close to a boiling pot of water, that's heat. But that is not heat. Because there is no such thing called heat out there. Out there, there are vibrations. There are intense vibrations. Your finger tip has, has receptors that can sense that. Intense vibrations. And when it does, it interprets it as heat. So what you experience as heat is mere interpretation. Therefore heat doesn't exist out there. But there is energy out there, yes. Energy is out there, but it's not heat. But we measure heat. We measure it in calories. Yeah? But I'm talking about the interpretation of that. Calories are used to measure energy. But we can say this is heat energy, right? um, um, kinetic energy, potential energy, and so on. Or joules are used to measure energy. And, and calories we, we measure, we use to measure the amount of heat that can be that can be obtained from, from, from burning something. But this, but this concept of heat, what we experience as heat, you know, when you rub your hands together, right, and you feel that heat, that heat is not there. Your interpretation of heat is what you experience. When we say the room's getting hot, what's happening is the, the movements are getting faster and faster. There are molecules out there, they get, the movements are getting faster and faster. Because there's energy that's going seeking out from your bodies, right? The sun is transferring energy. That is what heat is. So what is cooling down then? When vibrations slow down. You know, that's why they say at absolute zero, 
there are no vibrations. You can't cool anything colder than absolute zero, which is where all motion stops. It's a concept that they have in physics. So when you cool it down to, I think, minus 263 something, minus 273 degrees Celsius, absolute zero. At that point, all motion stops. So if all motion stops, then what was heat after all? Motion. Motion. So that is what's actually out there. Motion. You know, electrons are spinning around a nucleus. Motion. When you heat, that slows down. So all movement stops. But we experience heat. We sense heat as in the way, you know, I, I can't draw it for you and say this is how you experience heat, right? Because it's only a sensation of the mind. It's a perception. So, finally, to conclude on this point, you know, take pity on yourselves. The fact that we've come into this sensual world to experience something that actually doesn't exist out there is such a shame, I think. Because although all of this is fake, the pain that you have to endure to experience all this is very real. Although tongue doesn't actually taste taste, what about when you bite your tongue? Isn't that painful? Where is that pain, by the way? That's also interpreted by the mind. That pain is interpreted by the mind. That's why I say when you do exercise and you start to feel the pains and the aches in your body, don't be fooled to think that it is your body that is complaining. It is not, that is not how it feels in the muscles of your body. The muscles of your body are simply picking up chemical balances or chemical imbalances. Maybe perhaps the build-up build up of lactic acid. Right? That is all there is. The build-up of lactic acid and that sending an electrical signal. What you experience it as? Pain. That pain is not in the muscle. When you slap yourself, that pain is not here. When you pinch yourself, that pain is not here. Right? When, you, when, you, when you rub yourself, that, that, that feeling, that sensation is not here. These are all interpretations of the mind. So last but not least, coming back to the strawberry, where we started this conversation. Initially you thought that this whole thing was a body, one unit, right? one entity. And sight, sound, smells, taste and touch were intrinsic and contained within the entities, within these bodies. So therefore, to experience them, you wanted the object. But now you begin to understand that these sensations, they're not actually part and parcel of the object. They're not contained within the object. So color is not in the object. You know, you, 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 we know about pigments. right? And, and pigments only reflect energy that falls on it. Now, in fact, it would be wrong to say that this is green. It is green only under this light. Under another light, it's not green. So is it green? Can you say that the pigments are green? No. What a pigment does is simply reflect energy that falls on it, but in a different way. Right? So not even the pigments are green. So it's, you can't say the leaf is green. You can't even say the pigments are green. Because it all depends. If you shine ultraviolet on this, or an infrared light, now it's not going to look green. So whatever falls on it, it, it converts it 
or it absorbs some of it and some other radiation is, is emitted from it. That's how it works. So all these sensations that we experience, they're not out there. So then therefore, why do you look for the strawberry flavor in a strawberry? Now you understand that the strawberry flavor is not in a strawberry, then there's no point going after the strawberries. So where is this strawberry flavor? It's only in the mind. The strawberry flavor was never in a strawberry. It was not in any of the molecules of the strawberry. It is not in the tongue. It is not in the nerve. It is not in the brain. It's only how the mind perceives that particular sensation. If you were to rewire it and you eat strawberries, now you taste something else. Or you might feel an itch on the back if, when you eat strawberries, if you were to rewire that part of the body. That's all possible. It's all possible because that sensation is not in the object. See, now if you, are, if you can understand all that, you begin to realize, and what is the point of me being here in this sensual world? In a world where there are objects, what is the point of me being here? Because if the objects are not going to satisfy my desires, why be with objects? Yeah, why be with objects? What is the essence of the objects? What is the use of being with objects? What is the meaning of being with objects? Now you begin to free yourself from the attachment to objects. Your attachment to objects. Now when you go home, here's a bit of exercise, homework you can do. Right? As, after you go home, just you know, take a, pick up something that you have, you know, uh, something that you like. It could be an ornament. Maybe you have a favorite dress. Maybe a top, maybe you know, a, a sari or a blouse that you might like. Oh, maybe a, a, a cap. Maybe, maybe a, part of, a piece of jewelry that you might like. Right? Pick it up and ask yourself the question, what is it I'm, I'm exactly attached to? If you think that it is a color of that, of that object, ask yourself, is the color really in the object? Ask yourself that question. If there's a particular, it, maybe there's an ornament that you like. Right? Maybe you like the shine of it, right? the luster of it. Then maybe ask yourself, is it really there? Or is it merely how the mind perceives it? If this is all in the way that the mind perceives it, then why am I attached to the object? Let go of the object. I say, remain attached to the sensual sensation. That's okay, we can, we can deal with that later. But the object, let go of the object. So what I'm saying is, if you are if you're still attached, if you like strawberry flavor, that's okay. Just let go of the strawberry. We can deal with your attachment to strawberry flavor later. But if you still seek it from the strawberry, I can't remove you from this from a world where there are no where there are strawberries. You have to keep coming to a world where there are strawberries. But if you all if all you want is the strawberry flavor and not the strawberry, then I can take you away to a world where there are no strawberries and you'll be okay. Yeah? But if you want the strawberry flavor and you think it's in the strawberry, you have to be where there are strawberries. Then I can't take you away from this world. You, you, would always, you will always say, no, no, I want my strawberries. I, I'm, I'm trying to get you to a point where you say, Swaminasa, I don't want strawberries, but what I want is strawberry flavor. That is better than saying, I want strawberries. So contemplate on that. When you take, when you eat, you know, as you have lunch today, last week I asked you to contemplate on how it goes into making parts of your body. 
This week, I want you to contemplate on when you eat it. You know, is the is the is the flavor of dal in the dal? Is the flavor of uh, say chili in the chili? Is the flavor of whatever else we have today? Is is it in there? If you eat some fruit, is it in the fruit? Is the flavor of mango in the mango? Is the flavor of guava in the guava? Is the flavor of watermelon in the watermelon? Ask yourself that question. If you were to rewire those nerve cells in your in your brain and eat a mango, now what might you sense? As you eat a mango, you'll start scratching your leg because you'll feel like there's an itch coming from your leg because we've rewired it. So then, it's not the taste of mango in the mango. It's just a stimuli. So contemplate on that. Then you will break free from this attachment to physical objects because it is not the physical objects that serve your your desires. After all, you know, the mind is not really looking for physical objects. What it is looking for are these sensations. But it thinks it's in the physical object. Break that and you are free from the physical world. Make sense? All right. So meditation then this afternoon, okay? In the Dana Hall. Otherwise, you know, you might ask, Swaminanda, we come every day. Do we not get to do any meditation? No, there is meditation. This is the sermon. Then, this meditation. You meditate in the Dana Hall. When you take your arms food, that's meditation. Start your meditation. So as you eat your food, contemplate. Don't just have food. Make it food for thought. Not just food for your stomach, but make it food for thought. Then your eating would have been worthwhile. Otherwise, what's the point? You just eat something to go and fill a, a toilet then the next day, right? What's the point? Anyone can do that. Animals can do that. As human beings, we have to do something better, something more meaningful. Make it food for thought. Hmm? Not just food for the stomach, but food for the soul, food for thought. Right. Okay, let's take a moment then to transfer all the merits we have all acquired to all those who deserve it and who need it to fulfill their journey to sons, journey to free themselves from suffering. So reminding ourselves how extremely fortunate we are, let us take a moment to transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also take a moment to transfer this maze to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who've dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer this message to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all our monks resident at the monastery and our Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be there by translating their stocks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plains. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.
Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employers, our employees and our teachers, to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us and been by our side in difficult times. May they all rejoice in these merits. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they also all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who provide the Mahasangha, we shelter arms, robes and medicines, as well as pass on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May by the power of these merits they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhada Sasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. By the power of these merits, they, may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have passed away in our name, our loved ones, our ancestors and those who have predeceased us, our forefathers, reminding ourselves that today we enjoy the fruits of their labor. Let us be grateful to all that they have done for us in making our lives comfortable and livable as they have done so. Let us also remind ourselves and be grateful to those who sacrifice their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. This includes the members of the armed forces as well as the police force, as well as those who've lost their lives in the war, be their friend or foe. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who would have lost their lives to natural disasters, such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, blizzards, pandemics, and so on. Reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, and brothers and sisters to us, and friends to us. Those who will have been by our sides through tough and difficult times of our lives, May they all rejoice in these merits. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land, and may you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an Arahatan Vahanse or an Arahataran in Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. Members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Raga Ginnen 
परम सुखयन सुखित तार विबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार ममद सियलु लोक सियलु सत्मयो निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी द्वेश गिनी मोह गिनी निवान सुखेन सुखित साधु साधु साधु